2: It's the Wonky Show. We're just back from Labour's conference in Liverpool where Keir Starmer made some positive noises about universities. There are concerns mounting about anti-Semitism in HE following the Hamas attack in Israel. And we're asking where to draw the line when it comes to regulating student mental health. It's all coming up.
4: But I think our job is to try to point out if you keep doing that, if you don't address the trajectory of that line, you cannot possibly imagine this system will be delivering the kind of quality that we'd all expect it to be delivering in five or ten years' time.
2: Welcome to the Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy, and analysis. I'm Wonky's editor in chief, Mark Leach, and joining me to sprinkle the glitter over a week of higher education policy are three brilliant guests, as always. In Woburn House, it's Vivian Stern, chief executive of Universities UK. Vivian, your hired for the week, please.
4: Uh, <laughs> well, I'm going to I'm going to say um, Keir Starmer and Bridget Phillips and being nice about the higher education sector, but I mean more seriously being positive about the impact of expanding and widening participation in the last 30 years
1: yeah
2: yeah it was nice to see and in old trafford it's gareth smith executive director of student life and strategy
1: at ua 92 gareth your heart of the week please uh, I'm, I'm gonna have two mark if that's okay and um, i think a highlight i've already had so far um, is something seldom talked about on one key, is the return of uh, university sport British university college sport League guest today um, and our, our team's all doing very well um, and then a highlight later today is we've got the official opening of our business school in the center of manchester Who's Says we didn't
2: talk about sport on Wonky. That's that's not true. That's definitely not true. I'll look into that. And in North London, it's Debbie McVitie Wonky's editor. Debbie, your highlight of the week, please.
3: Um, Well, I'm having a bit of an intense week, so it's probably just as well, Gareth, the two highlights because I'm struggling to come up with one. Um, I think I'm going to have to say the 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 enormous glass of wine that I plan to have on Friday evening when all all the work is done and we're ready for the weekend.
2: Now we start the week with Labour Party conference in Liverpool, funding and everything else that was announced there. Debbie, walk us through it.
3: Yeah, so um, Labour Party conference took place this uh, weekend and 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 into the beginning of this week Um, lots and lots of of, uh, sector engagement there Uh, lots of lots of fringes discussing what's going on in in universities um, and uh, lots of discussion about sector finances what um, by all accounts we didn't hear was any kind of real shift in policy from the Labour Party on the the big issues around higher education funding and finance um, and sort of associated issues like like student maintenance and and kind of support for students with the cost of living crisis. Um, I think you know Labour is towing a sort of a sort of a sort of tricky tricky space here because um one of the kind of nice things as, as Viv mentioned earlier is is that labor is, is being much more friendly and positive about the higher education sector and about university participation in general and that's really great to see um, but of course labor is also very keen not to make any major spending commitments ahead of the election they want to you know they 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 are you know concerned about the, sp- the, st- the state of the public finances and they want to make sure that they're, they're the things that they're pledging to do are are costed or at least have the appearance of being costed um, and higher education as we know it's is, is just is just not a big priority in that kind of raft of things that might, um, might, might need addressing. So lots of warm words, but not very much in the way of, of significant policy shifts.
2: Uh, in terms of warm words, we've got a clip of Keir Starmer mentioning universities in a speech.
5: You know, I never thought I would hear a modern conservative prime minister say that 50% of our children going to university was a false dream. My dad felt the risk, disrespect of vocational skills all his life. But the solution is not, and never will be, the levelling down of working class aspiration to go to university.
2: Well, um, quite a quite quite a, quite a distance of travel from the Tory Party conference in Manchester the week before, wasn't it, Vivian?
4: Yeah, I mean, I I don't know whether it just shows that I've kind of lost all sense of proportion. But when the Prime Minister stood up at the Conservative Party conference and used a sort of not inconsiderable section of his speech to describe the expansion of participation in the university sector is the biggest policy mistake of the last 30 years. I, I, I really found it very hard to take. Um, I mean, I think it's an absurd statement. Uh, I think it's also strange. The Conservative Party doesn't want to own its role in this success in expanding participation. And we all know if you work in this sector, you know that you cannot widen participation if you don't expand it. Um, And it also seems to me that, you know, those people often who say that, um, frankly, too many people are going to universities, they're often people who themselves benefited from a university education whose children are likely to do so. My children are certainly likely to do so. And um, I keep thinking about Peter Pan, you know, this, um, this idea that, you know, if you say you don't believe in fairies, somewhere one dies. And I think maybe this is a little bit the same, that if the prime minister stands up, and sort of describes um, university education without qualification, without talking about it in terms of the being sort of perhaps a very small proportion of, um, of, of university provision that falls below the standards we'd expect, but talking about it in general terms and using phrases like "rip off universities," I think there are probably there are probably people in the country who perhaps don't have, um, you know, they don't know people who've gone to you've gone to university, they don't have any direct experience of it, um, who decide not to go as a result, and are poorer as a result of that decision, and that seems to me a great shame. So to go from that to a conference where. Um, you know, that sort of sense that it is unfinished business. We've got still a situation where you're twice as likely to go to university if you're from the um, the most affluent uh, uh, groups in society compared to the least affluent. That seems to me uh, something that we should work every day to address. Uh, that That was slightly heartwarming. And I was very glad to see that Labour have chosen to pick this up and and to make it a dividing line, frankly.
2: Mm, mm. Well, I mean, f- f- for me, I mean, this the idea that, you know you can hold these two concepts in your head that you know skills, vocational education and training are a good thing, and higher education can also be a good thing, and universities can be important parts of the economy. I mean, I don't know why it's you know we just not we just not heard anyone say that in um, in so long, have we, Gareth?
1: No, absolutely not. And I think you're looking at a very it's not it's not a linear divide between your kind of vocational education and your university education. Certainly, thinking about university. 92 and you're right we, we were founded under this government and so you, they'd argue they should claim credit for us and it's the kind of institutions like ours that have seen we have more students from polar four quintile one than quintile five that's due to the expansion of higher education if you contract higher education it's always somebody else's children that suffer that don't get to go to higher education it won't be the prime minister's children most likely that won't get to go and so expansion is the only way to do it and so it was yeah reassuring to hear keir starmer kind of reiterate that there was nothing wrong with that 50 percent aspiration of people going on to higher education
2: so lots of good vibes at this conference obviously as you' were saying they'd be quite light on on detail they can't announce too much particularly um, anything relating to spending but there is there is still there is still things to be done within the within the current envelope isn't, isn't there I mean this is what I was trying to argue on the, on the site earlier this week
3: yeah so um, one of the things that Bridget Phillipson said in her speech to conference was uh, planning to change the way students pay for educa- for their university education and I, th- I mean I think I think we shouldn't conclude that this means that labor has a kind of graduate tax proposal in its back pocket. I think you know. I think this is basically what. Um, uh, I think this is reiteration of of um, Philipson's proposals that came out at the beginning of the summer, which basically suggested um, reprofiling graduate repayment um, in such a way as to re- reduce the burden of debt on graduates. Uh, straight after, you know, sort of, sort of in the, in the early years in the workforce, so kind of sort of loading, load, loading the repayment on, at the point at which people are earning more. I think, I mean, I mean, no, no, we can't, we can't, say, we can't say for sure, but it, it looks like that's that that's kind of what is meant, and and the focus there really is about sort of relieve, relieving, um, relieving that, that that burden on on graduates at that kind of early stage. Um, but I think, I mean, one of the things that that you wrote about on the site is about the sort of the various things that might be done by by just by just sort of reprofiling the existing spend um and, and and do interesting things with things like interest rates um and one of the kind of slightly you know, very regressive things that that has been done in recent years is it was about abolishing uh the interest on students loans and this is one of these things that is seen as very kind of punitive um you know slapping a big interest rate on, on student loans but actually is one of the ways that the system is progressive and, and the people who earn more pay back more um so it's kind of it's 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 a, it's a policy that is that is very popular on the face of it but actually really really disadvantages lower earners and 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 you know and you know, women who who kind of take time out in the workplace and and thus become kind of lower earners and that, and that sort of thing. Um, so actually, if you put, if you put that back on, you, you have quite a lot of fiscal headroom um, to to do things like restore maintenance grants um, and, and and bolster bolster uh, the teaching grant and, and you know all, all all kinds of other things as well.
2: Yeah, Vivian, I'm, I'm fascinated to get your take on this because you know the last time the system was tinkered with in, t- in 2021, the the treasury gobbled up the lot of the savings and, and there was there was no there was nothing else for uh, for graduates. There's nothing else for students. Students and there was nothing else for, for universities. And the system was made a lot more regressive in, in one fell swoop. And I guess that's left us in the left us with a terrible bind because there's even more, there's even there's even less wiggle room, isn't there, to um to, to make the system better. But stuff can still be done in that in that envelope. And I'm just really I'm just really interested to know what the conversations you're having with policymakers are and what, what the sector is kind of formally asking for. Um, you know, obviously we're trying to get out of this uh knot that we're we're, we're tied in with all these different uh uh, fiscal pressures, but at the same time, like you know, Debbie's saying and the and the piece is arguing, you know, can there be can there be a sensible way through this that that stays within the stays within the rules, stays within Rachel Reeves's stated um, fiscal rules?
4: So I mean, look, the first thing I'd say is um, there are some very positive signals, if you read between the lines and what Bridget Phillipson has been saying publicly on the, on the part of this problem that relates to the funding that is available to deliver teaching. Um, there is, you know, it, and it was said time and again on the uh, fringe and in the conference, you know, finding a way to address the pressures on um, the university teaching side is going to be very difficult, but at least they're being acknowledged um, and I think that is now a pretty standard part of, of what Bridget says about um, this nest of problems. So, you know, some time ago you would hear um, you would hear an emphasis on the the problems as they appear to students whilst they're studying. So, maintenance support and um, and and, and the, the the flaws in the graduate repayment um, system. Now you're also hearing an acknowledgement that something will need to be done about the funding available for teaching the other way to address this is to think about the kind of short the short medium term and the longer term i think we need to just keep reiterating that one way or another you cannot have a system which maintains quality whilst the funding for teaching uh, declines year after year after year and the simple objective should be to change the trajectory of that line the unit of resource for teaching is going down and our job is to uh, you know to, to change that so that the the, um, the line curves upwards. The big question is, how long is it going to take us to get to a point where we've got a workable means for government to do that? But I think the solution is likely to be a patchwork solution. I think there have been a lot of people starting to talk about rebalancing the private and the public contribution, um, you know, pointing to the way that the 2012 reforms shifted uh, much more of the cost of higher education onto the individual. Um, And and I think that, you know, from my point of view, that patchwork has to, at some point, no matter how many people will tell you it's impossible to do it, at some point that patchwork of solutions has to involve also index linking the, um, the fee. Now, I don't think that is likely to happen before an election, but I don't think we should be shy of saying you can't keep it frozen in the long term. I, I also think that there's um, you know, there, there's, there's a perhaps an argument that there were people who believed that 9,250 or 9,000 was the wrong level in the first place. And if you think about what Ed Miliband was suggesting and uh, what was suggested in the Orgo Review, you might suggest that there are some people who think that perhaps a bit of fiscal drag is no bad thing here. Um, but I think our job is to try to point out, if you keep doing that, if you don't address the trajectory of that line, you cannot possibly imagine this system will be delivering the kind of quality that we'd all expect it to be delivering in five or 10 years' time. So the question isn't if, it's when, I think. And that's what we need to focus policy makers' minds on.
2: Gareth, this, this question of fees is, I mean, you know, enormously vexed, isn't it? I mean the public first put out uh, some polling earlier this week that we we covered extensively on monkey they they, they ranked different options they put they put a bunch of different options in front of um in front of the public about about higher education funding including index linking fees with with inflation and and even that was still extremely unpopular i suspect partly at least in part because people don't understand the system and they don't understand that doing that wouldn't really cost anyone any more money and uh, or, or or be kind of punitive on um students or graduates um but you know how how do you how do you make a case to the public when this issue is so misunderstood and and so um and so controversial
1: yeah i think vivian rightly articulated the kind of the need for index linking to kind of support teaching and the funding into universities but equally if we look at the fact that kind of the triple lock on pensions from a kind of intergenerational fair point of view the the kind of willingness around a a triple lock on pensions and yet we see student loans go way beneath inflation and therefore the consequence that has on kind of students uh, their mental health well-being as we'll talk about later as well and you look at where this debate's moved in the states the likes where Biden's offering kind of full debt relief. It's interesting why the UK is so far behind in, in it. Is it because a uh, kind of system of uh, tuition fees is more immature, arguably in, in the UK than it has been in the States? But certainly you'd think over time, you're going to see that kind of policies like Biden's proposing, uh, kind of being more popular in the, in the UK. But right now, I think it's, yeah, it's asking too much from the electorate for them to understand the rab rates and the changes that Michelle Domlin's already made. But I think what we need is that real patchwork of solutions that Vivian mentioned. I think there's some hope in some of what uh, is detailed in LLE, and I know Matt Weston's been querying this. So right now, under the system, there's no real incentive for higher education institutions to offer um, accelerated degrees because our fees are capped at 20% lower. Um, if you un- unlinked that and enabled us to charge those kind of full fees, it still saves the exchequer because the loan overall that a student would get would still be over two years rather than three. So I think there's relatively simple things that could be done as part of that patchwork of solutions that give us a better system. And fundamentally, we need to ensure that any system for the students is is not regressive. In the nature that it is right now, those that earn the most, that benefit the most from higher education should ultimately be those that pay the most, not those that take a career break or earn just above the threshold for a full. full Forty years to end up paying over over time with the level of interest as it is.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I mean, Vivian, um, um, Vivian, I'm, I'm sort of pleased on the one hand that you think that you know there is a message that can get through there to labour labour shadow ministers. Is that is that is that what you're saying? Do you, do you think that they're receptive to the idea that that line that curve has to start ticking upwards at some point, despite the. The political risks.
4: Well, you know, our, our the work that we've been doing in, in UK is about sort of establishing first that there is a problem, and, and that it's not a problem that is just should be of concern to the university. Uh, you know, system itself, but should be concerned to anybody who has a stake in um, the performance of the higher education system in the UK, which is, by the way, everybody. Um, and that's the the base camp, right? So establish that there is something, you know, happening here that isn't in our national interest. And um, the next step, I think, is trying to set out a range of measures which are, you know, politically achievable. And I think that's why time is a factor in that in 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 finding um, that solution and um you know the 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 third thing is about trying to um, move the debate on the uh, the way that we finance higher education on just a notch. I think there was a huge missed opportunity both in um, the uh, 2004 five period when the first um, variable, they weren't intended to be a three thousand fee system, was introduced, and um, again in in 2000 between 2010 and 2012. The the system is designed to be a contributory system. It's designed in a way that the state backs the individual risk so you go to university, you are overwhelmingly likely to benefit from that both financially and in all sorts of other ways. But you know, the the because it's also in the national interest that a significant proportion of our population goes to university, the state stands behind you and says, look, if it doesn't work out for you and you don't end up making a huge amount of money, we're going to pick up the 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 tab. And and it's intended to be a balance. It was intended to You know, to to implement two legs of what Deering proposed in '96, or whenever he published his report, that um, that the, the because higher education is both a private and a public. Uh, good. The contribution should be drawn from both the individual and the state. And the way that's expressed in our system is m- m- largely through the subsidy on the loan. But that feels like, you know, somehow there's a failure when government doesn't recoup the full loan. And I would say we've got to try and change the political understanding of that. It's not a failure, it's an expression of that shared risk. And that may sound like a very sort of ambitious thing to do. But as I said, I think we've got to. Um, see the solution to this problem um, as something that has a, a, a you know we, we've got a short term problem and then there is something that I think we will only be able to do over a period of a few years.
2: Mm, yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I think that the the fact that that balance is is out of whack is is almost un, 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 unarguable. I mean, the rab charge is down to thirteen percent, you know, mostly at the expense of of graduates uh, and lower earning graduates, and universities didn't get any uh, any extra cash while that while that, that while that change was made. I mean. I, I, I completely agree the, the balance that there needs to be kind of some, some kind of restoring of, uh, uh, of the force here. Um, but you know it's sixty years on from Robbins as well. So as you know, everyone's talking about higher education reviews and the kind of you know whether or not uh, it would be advisable to to kind of look you know more seriously at the system or whether we whether we need to just fix that that balance you described so well, Vivian, um, or whether we need to go back to really to, to first principles um, and advocate you know particularly a, a new government perhaps saying okay let's let's uh, you know let's do a, a root and branch you know Robbins or Deering style review of higher education what do we want out of it what what's its role in society and how does everyone pay for it do you think that's that's realistic debbie
3: um i, th- I don't i don't know that it is a very good idea <laughs> i think i mean because so on the one on the one hand you want to you know i think i think i think looking at the system as a whole and i think you know things like for example the interaction between um knowledge exchange activity and um, in a region and the graduates' uh, skills in that region is, is really kind of sensible policy approach. You know, you want to kind of see how these things connect up and you want to put the right policy things in place to be able to, um, you, know, to, to you know, to make sure that that works. So that's kind of I think you know there's, there's, there's always a case to kind of look at something in the round and, and say well let's let, let's do that that said I'm, j- I'm just not convinced that this is the right time to do that um you know mainly because it's not you know it's it whatever what you know it, it would have to be an independent review it would take several years during which time you know the problems that we know exist in the system would get worse um it, it wouldn't be enough time for there to be kind of sufficient turning round of the economy to make everybody feel kind of confident that any recommendations that come out could be implemented in full so we'd end up with a kind of bodge So I think, um, and, 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 and actually i'm not convinced i think there, i think there are kind of challenges in the system i think some bits probably don't work as well together as as they do but i'm not convinced that the, the problems are so kind of so systemic and so long term such that, you know such that it would need to be addressed by review would offset the need for there just to be addressing of the immediate kind of financial pressures on students and universities um so i think you know the focus really needs to be on on kind of sorting those out while while perhaps you know and, and you know they're pro- they're probably you know we will be due you know towards perhaps towards the end of the End of the next parliament, and, and you know another another look, um, and I think universities ca- could be quite sort of proactive in, in in sort of articulating that role for themselves and kind of looking looking to kind of address uh, or you know identify some of those moments where things aren't working quite as well and, and, and propose solutions. And I know kind of Viv is very on that. <laughs> and So yeah, so um, yeah, I'm really not convinced that kind of you know sort of getting everyone around the table and saying lots of a tertiary review is, is is the right way forward. Although I can see why I can see why it would be tempting.
2: Vivian, I have to move us on, but just a uh, in a sentence. Would you advocate for a big review, or do you advocate one when, when lobbying politicians?
4: Look, I think we want to keep, in a sense, we want to keep the solution part of this issue out of the, an election because I don't think, I don't think that electoral politics will help us get the right solution. So the solution, um, you know, whatever the next government does. I think I would support something that would help us arrive at a conclusion about that, the other side of an election. The danger with a review, as Debbie has said, is it kicks things into the long grass. So, um, in a sense, what we've been doing with the national conversation is doing the review before the review happens. Um, and I think the, the the challenge for us is make sure everybody understands there's an issue, and be ready with a workable patchwork of solutions the other side of an election. Now, I don't think that will necessarily take a review, and I and I do slightly share Debbie's view that that's kicking it into the long grass. Um, but you know, if there is a mechanism that can get you cross party support take the politics out of it and give us something that will be sustainable in the long term then it might be worth a bit of a delay
2: right let's see who's been blogging for us this week
4: Hello, I'm Annabelle Kiernan, Pro
0: Vice Chancellor Academic at Staffordshire University. And I'm Kira Bunting, Education Research and Evaluation Manager also at Staffordshire University. Student basic needs is an area which is occupying much of our time when it comes to understanding why some students aren't achieving their potential and why some struggle to get off the starting blocks. Taking into account the impacts of the pandemic and rising living costs, we've carried out a pilot survey with just over 100 students to directly ask them about the insecurities they face during their university life. The survey was inspired by work led by the Hope Centre across a network of US colleges, and our findings have been shared in fringe events hosted by the Purpose Coalition at both the Conservative and Labour Party conferences. The results paint a stark picture, revealing a range of insecurities which impact students' well being, mental health, and engagement. Our findings confirmed that nearly all students, 93%, are worried about the cost of living, and 10% are not eating at least once a month because they can't afford to. Added to that, 25% of students reported that they moved between homes three to five times in a single year, and two thirds were having to ask friends and family to help cover the cost of food and for paying bills. So the responsibility is on us. Educators and policymakers to act on these findings by developing and integrating targeted support that addresses these insecurities. And we also have to adapt our teaching methods and delivery to align with the genuine needs of our students. For more information, you can read our article,
4: which links through to the report of the pilot study.
2: Now, ministers at DfE have written to the sector uh, about anti-Semitism in H.E. Vivian, tell us what's going on.
4: Ah, uh, right. Well. Uh, we have obviously uh, seen a week in which universities have had to provide advice to their students about how to um, engage in a debate about what's happening in Israel in a way that is compliant with the law. What Gillian Keegan and Robert Halfin has done, in fact, is it's exactly what we did on the Uh, uh, on Monday morning which has just put out a note to remind people that Hamas is a terrorist organisation. It's therefore subject to um, uh, restrictions, uh, legal restrictions, um, which prevent um, people expressing support for it or glorifying um, acts of terrorism. And I think what Robert Halfen and Gillian Keegan are doing is reminding people that I I think although um, this is a topic which is always one of the um, real crunch points when you come to managing uh, campus relations and balancing the rights of people to express views with the need to stay within the law uh, and to prevent um, anti-Semitism or or other forms of hate speech being permitted Um, it's just one of those times where you need to remind people that there is a red line and they shouldn't cross it. And to be honest, that was precisely the point of our press statement on Monday, which was very, very simple and straightforward. We uh, we, we simply uh, put out a statement to remind people that um, Hamas is a prescribed terrorist organisation and signaling support, including moral support or expressing an opinion or belief that is supported is a criminal offence.
2: All right, lots to unpack here. Um Gareth, maybe I'm being naive, but um, it seems rather dispiriting, to say the least, that people have to re- be reminded that Hamas is a terrorist organisation. Is there a is there a wider problem at play here in terms of anti-Semitism in higher education?
1: I think Mark, it's, it's been an ongoing issue over years and, and decades, indeed, on campuses where it, it, it is it is a a source of tension in campuses, and clearly we need to make sure that kind of Jewish students on campuses feel feel safe, and I think that there is the need for advice around it in terms of really reiterating. You're right. That kind of Hamas are a terrorist organisation in terms of what they do. Uh, these are these are not freedom fighters. These are terrorists uh, uh, taking actions that they did uh, in in Israel. But equally, going further, that not equating then support for a Palestinian state or a two-state solution being support for Hamas, and I do think people need educating about that. And I can think of certain slogans which you might see chanted on on kind of uh, campuses, which effectively call for the destruction of the state of Israel, and therefore, absolutely, advice is needed to make sure that our students feel completely safe. Obviously, the right to kind of protest about what's happened in Israel and indeed what what's happening in Gaza is completely needs to be there. But absolutely, I think guidance to ensure our kind of students and staff feel safe. I, I saw a former colleague of mine expressing her fear about she didn't feel safe to go and see Golder at the cinema, something she'd been planning to do for ages. And we clearly can't have an environment on campuses where Jewish students are afraid that they might go to a cinema screening and be faced with protests.
2: Uh, and Debbie, one of the other things that sort of slightly troubles me is this kind of water battery that goes on when something, when something like this happens, you know, you know there are people who just can't, for whatever reason, bring themselves to condemn. You know, an, an atrocious act of violence without having to say, "Well, there is another side to this." You know, would the response be the same if Hamas had done an attack inside the states, for example?
3: It's actually it's, it, is, it is it is genuinely hard to think about having the conversation about what the appropriate response is in part because there, there are, you know, there are compar- you know, comparisons don't, don't sort of work because this is a very, very distinctive situation. So I think I'm not, I'm probably not going to kind of say um, if it was, the, if it was this parallel case, then this would be the case. However, I do want to, I do think it's really important to say that if you have decided that as an organisation, you are going to say things about acts of atrocity you know, in the UK, in the US, around the world, you know, whatever it is, then you can't then leave out other acts of atrocity because it's uncomfortable. And, you know, and I think it's also completely legitimate for universities to say, actually, you know what? Well, as an organization, our job is not to take a view. Um, you know, our job is, our job is not to kind of, do this, and I think you know that there's a kind of legitimate debate about whether it's important to kind of be moral leaders in that way, or whether it's important to be able to kind of say, actually, we we, we don't have an official kind of because this is a very kind of sensitive issue, and we don't have a, we don't have a position on this. And that's that's you know that is also true of of of, of terrorist activity worldwide. And I say this is someone who grew up in a um, in a in, in a region kind of affected by terrorism, um, and you know they're always they're always you know it's it's you know behavior is always atrocious, um, and there is also you know a, a political context to it. Um, uh, that you know, so I think, so yeah, I think the problem the problem comes if you are kind of being if you're picking and choosing about what moral atrocities you stand up for um and and this is essentially the kind of criticism um that ga students are are, are having of their institutions right now saying, look you know. You can't, you, you can't, you, you, you can't chop logic on this particular issue. It's got to be, you know, we've got, we, you know, you, you've, you've either got her back, so you don't.
2: Yeah, I mean Vivian, I want to pick that up with this question of moral leadership and, and how you how you see the sector's role. I mean, take an example of the, the 2015 attacks in Paris, the terrorist attacks. Mm. The sector was was lining up to condemn those, um, issuing statements, flying flags at, at half mast. Um, and, you know, there wasn't any discussion about, there wasn't any kind of discussion qualifying it. It was just accepted that that was wrong. And on a moral level, there has to be some calling out of that. And I think, you know, it's as a as a Jewish person, it's quite painful and very difficult to understand why uh, people in society don't do the same when those attacks um, happen either in Israel or, or on, on Jewish people in, in general. And it does look like there are different different standards, and I mean, David Bedil wrote a a brilliant book about this, which I I really recommend to to readers called called Jews Don't Count. To listeners, sorry, uh, about why that might be, about how Jews are treated differently in these in these debates. I, I strongly recommend it. But do you do you accept that there is a case that universities have a wider moral leadership role? And if so, kind of where does it where does it end? And do you th- do you agree with Debbie that um, you know if 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 some atrocities are are, are bad, um, then we have to accept that all are, and we have to treat them in a in a similar way.
4: Look, the first thing is what has happened. The attack on Israel is horrific, and the you know I, 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 you don't need to. Well, you you know I've got well, I, I, you don't know I've got family in Israel. and, uh, you know I'm t- I'm in touch with. Uh, people who who sort of are uh, you know they're they they're really very very bleak about what's coming next. Um, and I'm I'm not Jewish myself, but my family on my father's side is. My dad's a Holocaust survivor. The kind of thing that Daniel Finkelstein wrote in the Times a couple of days ago. I highly recommend people read. You know, it speaks to a little part of me because I sort of know that there's a, there's a part of this discussion which which those people who have have some understanding of the way that Jews have been driven, you know, from place to place over centuries, um, you know, appreciate that perhaps isn't more widely appreciated. I think um, I think that it's important to use this moment to remind people that this is a very, very complex um, uh, set of circumstances with very, very deep roots on all sides. But having said all of that, I, it's for individual university to decide whether they make a statement on, um, on events in the world. I just always, you know, from our point of view in the UK, I think you have to be very careful when you do and don't do that, because the question legitimately is then the one that you've just asked. If you speak out about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and then you decide not to speak out about something like this, then it implies that you think one somehow has a, a lesser importance. Um, My own view is that our focus should be right now on making sure that universities provide the guidance and support to students to enable them to understand how to take part in this debate without stepping over a red line. Um, And that doesn't seem entirely simple to me. um, And that's why in our statement on Monday, we just try to stick very, very simply to the fact that Hamas is a terrorist organisation, and what has happened is a terrorist atrocity, and you cannot express support for that within the law. Now, I don't think that's the same as um, expressing support for the Palestinian people or expressing a view on the, uh, the the two-state solution. What I think you have to try and do is help people who are trying to express strongly held view to stay within the law.
2: I mean, Gareth, there, there is or. Well... You know, many people believe, you know, there's a problem with anti-Semitism in, in higher education, as there is across all parts of society. But, you know, you look at some of the reports over the last few days of um, of some of the things that this guidance from, from DfE and the UK are trying to um, are trying to to make sure it doesn't happen. You see, you, you know, you see the way that um, the attacks are described on social media by lots of different sorts of academics. You see, you know, there's been lots of video clips surface of uh, people um, saying pretty horrific things um, at protests and vigils and. Uh, and and whatnot, and it does it does remind us that there is a anti-Semitism problem in HE that hasn't been that's, that's been there for a long time, um, but um, hasn't gone away, and, and doesn't appear to be any time soon. If, if anything, appears to be getting worse in in some ways. And I, I wonder what um you know what 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 we should be doing about that in terms of a, a of a sector response separate to the events of this week.
1: I, I think you're right. We need to kind of question ourselves and question the kind of response that has been. I, I think that's my own experience. I was a a student studying abroad. Um, um, at 9-11 and uh, you 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 think that I was roundly condemned in terms of the acts of kind of the, of ISIS terrorist attacks there, and we've probably not seen that same level uh, of condemnation in terms of uh, the atrocities that have happened in Israel. Despite the fact uh, we've obviously seen from from Netanyahu equating Hamas as being just as evil, if not more evil uh, than ISIS in terms of what they've done. But I think the important thing is supporting our our students so that they feel safe on our on our campuses. You're right, this has been a, an an ongoing issue. I think. Back to kind of all the time when when uh, Luciana Berger and others were involved in in NUS and that was an, an issue back then, and clearly remains an issue today. So I think the key bit is we need to make sure that all our students feel supported and safe and able to debate this in in the right way. So our Jewish students feel safe, but equally we're aware that students with with families in Gaza right now will be feeling uh, particularly tense and upset. Uh, about the 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 possibilities of uh, kind of further Israeli uh, military action. and so I think the key bit is just supporting our our students about how they have this debate and and accepting that there will be people who go really struggle um as a result of everything that's happened with direct family involved
2: and Debbie, I mean as we we've alluded to this this does raise a bunch of other questions about uh, freedom of speech on on campus which is you know a piece of uh, piece of work that is coming down the tracks at us with the consultation and the and the bill that's uh, being put in force and the new new director of free speech this certainly adds context to or you know the, the challenges that rf Ahmed the the new free speech champion is 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 going to face, isn't it?
3: Yeah. So, so Arif Ahmed, uh, the new director for freedom of speech and academic freedom at OFS, made his sort of uh, first, first sort of big, you know, UK public statement, and he kind of, he sort of, you know, brought the broad defence of freedom of speech. I think, you know, moments like this really is where the rubber hits the road in terms of what that means. And I think, you know, it is Viv is completely right in the sense that, you know, there is actually it it, it is is to an extent pretty cut and dried because um, if you have this is, you know, there there is a kind of category of speech that is outside the law in this context when you're talking. Talking about um, endorsing or supporting or glorifying acts of terrorism. Um, so in that sense, Ahmed's kind of you know very much on point when he says you know you can say what you like as long as you say it within the law. And you know that that could be that could be upsetting and difficult for for people. But you know as long as it's legal, that that's fine. And it's you know universities that need need, need to protect it. I think the but uh, you know I I, I think that sort of a little bit. Um, I, th- I think that's probably an optimistic perspective if you think about the the sorts of claims that could be made in the context of. Of, of a very heightened and emotional, you know, intense debate, you know, it, you know, again against a backdrop of 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 you know of of sort of very very difficult in, events, um, it is not, I think, clear at this time what the job of universities is to promote freedom of speech in that context, or what you know what promoting might even look like. You know, is 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 the job to. Um, you know, should you, should, you know, should universities be actively trying to kind of enable enable a debate about this? Is a debate even the right way to address something of this kind of scale and horror? Um, you know, it, it it seems very kind of um, you know it, it 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 just it just seems like a kind of like 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 not 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 a kind of not not where people's heads are going to be. You know, it just sort of, sort of seems seems off base. So I think you know it, it's for the. It's, the in in some in some ways I think it you know as 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 these kind of moments occur, um thinking about them in the context of free speech legislation, thinking about, you know, OFS is going to go to consultation in the coming months about how the kind of national complaint scheme should work in practice, um about, you know, about the, the condition of the new condition of registration that will be laid down. Um, around um uh, securing and, and promoting freedom of speech um, and academic freedom in universities you know i think it's 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 really really important that everyone thinks quite carefully about what can reasonably be expected of universities what universities you know and, and how universities can balance that question of things sort of supporting students um giving giving you know giving giving the right advice about how to stay within the law for the students that want to have the debate but also sometimes saying to the students it's okay if you don't want to have the debate this is really tough and the thing that you need right now is is support and, and and you know and, and to feel safe and it that's a really tough you know road to hope but you know we, we sort of knew that and and these moments um you know re- will, will 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 create opportunities to reflect on, on how that can be made to work as best as possible
1: hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th Do you want to tell people the big news
2: Gareth, there's been a discussion this week in Labour Party conference in Liverpool about mental health and regulating it, and should the RFS get involved or not? Can you walk us walk us through it?
1: Uh, yes, absolutely, uh, Mark. So, uh, yeah, debate at Social Market Foundation organised event uh, around the kind of student mental health crisis, or indeed the broader mental health crisis that we see across society. But we're aware that students are kind of suffering more than others of the same same age. Um, we then saw kind of commitments from from West Street and kind of friend of the podcast around kind of uh, as shadow health secretary around the broader. Commitments around uh, mental health, but that's how that would relate into the higher education sector and Matt Weston raising the prospect of whether it should be a regulated um, approach. Um thinking about it myself, uh kind of yeah, I'm slightly fearful of regulation. It absolutely is a priority for us at University Academy ninety two. But the OFS have allocated us two thousand six hundred and twenty two pounds uh, towards our approach towards mental health and transition. And it would cost us far more to almost report on that than the than the huge amounts more than that we spend on supporting our, our students uh, with regard to their mental health and the challenges that they face around increasing rent costs, uh student inflation, uh loneliness, etc., when we're not seeing kind of student loan and maintenance support uh, kind of go up in line with inflation.
2: Yeah, yeah. And we've actually got a clip of uh, what, what Maston said.
1: And I guess what I'm saying with uh,
5: with uh, with mental health is that um, the I would expect that all institutions have a good practice in terms of the approach to mental health, sexual harassment uh, uh, and assault uh, on campus, that there are these practices. I'm not saying that it should necessarily be with, not be within OFS, but I do ex- would like to believe that all institutions will have protocols in place. Now, who actually <laughs> <coughs> ensures they are in place? I'm not sure. I'm not necessarily saying it should be the OFS. But we must make sure that there are no gaps, that there is, this is not a risk. It's not just down to, oh, well, you happen to be at the wrong institution. They didn't have a protocol in place. We do need to make sure these things happen. So, Vivian's right it's not really for a regulator to be doing that but we do need to ensure that institutions are uh, doing the right thing.
2: So Vivian I'm interested to know where you think the line is on um, RFS and and student mental health and um, to what extent it should be getting involved? I know some of your comments this week at Liverpool may have been misinterpreted, perhaps, but um, yeah, I thought it was good to give you the opportunity to to tell us what you think.
4: Well, I, I had a bit of, a, 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 I don't know, it's kind of polite spat with Jim Dickinson on the site about this this week. I don't think um, that there should be a condition of regulation around um, universities' approach to supporting student mental health, and I think that was what was being implied in the letter which Robert. Halpin wrote encouraging universities to take up the mental the, the mental health charter, um, and there was a sort of paragraph at the end of it that said, you know, or else. And I, what my point is, we've got this regulator has got uh, too much on its plate. It, it we need to strip back um, the. The focus of the regulator so that it can do a great job and inspire public trust and confidence in quality and access, particularly, and free up the resources within institutions to devote to supporting their students, which is their primary, what, what the funding they do have, tightly constrained, should be primarily directed to. It is not saying mental health, student mental health is none of the OFS's business. So I guess if Matt and I had sort of had a longer conversation, we'd probably find that we maybe agreed with each other. I think. My my sort of broad view is there shouldn't be a condition of regulation around this registration,
2: mm. and but should there be kind of anything centrally at all, or do you think this is a this is a matter for universities to to kind of work out for themselves?
4: Well, we are. I mean, the the, the take up of the charter is pretty widespread. We're working with um, the group led by Edward Peck. To support that we're also making sure we gather feedback on the charter but beyond that you know we need to do something about the kind of the degree to which um, the health service and the uh, the university system can work efficiently together in an era of just rising demand around mental health which I think in the end is going to outstrip both the um, the capacity in the health service and the capacity in universities to support it and um, I think that's a very very important uh, it's more important that we get that right I think than that universities get sort of po- Pulled up short if they're if if they're seen to be um, uh, you know somehow not doing everything that they. Uh, might be expected to do I think that's just it's not helpful to see this as a regulatory challenge I think it's something which requires collaboration particularly between universities and the health service.
3: So I think this is fascinating because what Matt is saying at that fringe is that the regulator that is constituted isn't hasn't got the tools available to it to do the sorts of things we might want it to do which very sort of different in some ways from kind of shouldn't, should student mental health be regulated what he's describing as a scenario where he's saying we absolutely want people to be Doing some stuff, um, and this and this, I think, is true of a lot of the, of the things that will come out of of, Ed, of Edward Peck's um, mental health task force in government. But we we don't want it to be kind of codified in legislation or in regulation. And I think there's really good reasons for that, not least because the sort the sorts of things that you might talk about if you're talking about specific support for mental health. Um, there's a, I think you know the, there's there's a sort of argument for for a basket of things that, that constitute good practice. But actually, a lot of that is integrated into into the broader thing around teaching and learning, around access, around um, you know things like positive research cultures and um you know high quality supervision for PGRs. I mean the sort of mental health sort of is, is sort of woven through the whole the whole thing. And that this is this is what UK's um, uh, step change framework and the mental health charter is, is really trying to address. So I think the idea of sort of regulating on it is become becomes a bit sort of tricky. Um, so I think there's I think the thing that we we probably need to think about is what what are the kind of actions short of regulation? Um, and and is it OFS or is it another body that should be empowered or enabled to do that? Um, and you know, it's it sort of, it, it's 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 not, it's not in some ways it's not very helpful to kind of hearken back to Hefke. But you know, this is exactly the sort of thing that that Hefke would have kind of caused to happen. Um, through, you know, through through mechanisms like funding, and OFS versus is, cap- is capable of doing that. But but it, but there's always that kind of threat of 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 it having turning into a condition of regulation, and, and sort of the lever the levers available being being insufficient to achieve that kind of good practice. Um, and certainly, I think also it, there's a question mark about whether UK is the right body as well, because of course it it has it has no kind of enforcing or part at all. So they think there's you know there's there's something in the middle there. Um, and we haven't quite worked out as a sector what um you know what, what, what the theory of change is to, you know, to, to cause things to happen without using kind of very blunt tools like regulation.
2: Gareth, and uh, interested to know how
1: you think universities could work together on uh, on tackling this issue. I think there's very much kind of the case that, that universities can share best practice and different institutions share best practice and potentially come together to provide the best kind of mental health support. Thinking uh, from a small provider uh, perspective and um, kind of something around like CBT therapy wouldn't be something that we could provide directly ourselves but maybe if we work with other providers you can provide a broader range of kind of mental health support um, across the across the different students and so i think the ability of institutions to work together share best practice that's absolutely what ofs should be focusing on rather than potentially a, a move towards further regulation
2: so that's about it for this week remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today you'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com don't forget you can get the latest show automatically when it's out just search for the wonky show wherever you get your podcasts and to find out about how we keep you and where you work ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE do head to the site and click subscriptions so thanks very much to Vivian, Gareth, Davi and Michael who makes the show happen behind the scenes we're back next week Jim will be here until then stay wonky